please turn to Psalm 129. We are continuing our sermon series in, in the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 129. We all sort of have our, our fairness meters, don't we? Right? The, the, those things that we think are fair and those things that we think are unfair. Uh, they're all sort of tuned as, a, as children. And I remember as a child, you know, my, my, my mom would, uh, you know, throw us, uh, throw me a birthday party. And so we'd invite friends and they'd come to my birthday party. But here's the sort of kicker. Here was the problem. I have a twin brother. So it was like a twofer, right? And so we'd have this birthday party with me and my brother. And so we'd invite our friends and our friends would come and they would often just bring one gift for my brother and I to share. One gift. We were two people One gift would be brought. And I remember just even thinking back then, how unfair that is. Well, we grow up and we still think that some things are fair and other things are just unfair. And if you sort of think about it, much of the sort of cultural conversation that's going around these days, much of the heated conversations, they're really about fairness, about what is fair and what is unfair. And much of the debate, much of the heated debate, is on different people's fairness tuning. Well, what is fair? How do we know what's fair and what's not fair? How do we gauge fairness in this world? How would we know when we found it? Because one of the things that is sort of Uh, uniquely binding all all humans at all times is that we all think and we all desire and we all pursue fairness. We all want it, sort of instinctively. And yet, what happens when we are the perpetrator of unfairness? Well, Well, in those moments, we don't really want fairness, do we? We want something else altogether. In the Bible, there's a book of songs. It's a, it's a sort of hymn book called the Book of Psalms. And we have been slowly going through a portion of them. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And, and this sort of collection of psalms, they're called the Psalms of Ascent. Th- these collection of psalms were put together as songs sung by pilgrims as they made their journey up to Jerusalem at various times to be sung by pilgrims as they ascended to Jerusalem. And, and like all of life, right, we have a diversity of experiences. Well, there's a diversity of songs to be sung to sort of match our various moods. And in this songbook, in this sort of collection of psalms, you know, We're going to look, we've already looked at nine of them. We're going to look at the tenth in this section of Psalms, Psalm 129. Now, there are some songs that are hard to sing, right? Like, I have a hard time singing country songs. I'm sorry, if you like country, I just, it's just not my preference. I, I don't know how to sing it. Right? We all have those sort of songs, those sort of genres, those sort of things in our sort of lyrical wheelhouse. But, but then there's other songs that we're like, yeah, I don't, I don't like to sing those sorts of songs. Or they're hard to sing. 
Well, I think for many of us, today's song is going to be a hard song to sing. It's a difficult song to sing. Because the sort of backdrop of this song is one of pain and suffering and hardship. And not only that, but this is one of those psalms which is called an imprecatory psalm, meaning that the the author, the, 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 the sort of pilgrim, is going to announce cursing and judgment on enemies. And yet this is still a song that we're meant to sing. It's supposed to kind of fly off of our lips, even though it's sort of a discorded type of song. So this morning, here's the big idea. It might be hard to sing, but it's really easy to understand the the major and main point of this text. And it's simply this, that deliverance comes to some, but it doesn't come to all. Now, in in sort of to unpack this psalm, this sort psalm, it's only eight verses, I want to look at sort of three notes, right? This song that's supposed to be sung, it sort of has three harmonies. It's like a three-part harmony. The first song that I want to look at is the song of the afflicted. And then I want to look at the song of those who afflict, sort of the song of the enemy. And then thirdly, I want to look at the song of the deliverer. So let me read the text, if you will, Psalm 129, and then we'll jump into it. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel say now, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So first, let's look at the first few verses, the song of the afflicted. Go there to verse 1. And right there in verse 1, we read the, 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 the sort of psalmist is saying, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then it's like repeated, right? Sometimes we have responsive readings. We even do it here. And so, like, for instance, I would read a portion of scripture as an individual, and then I'd say, okay, now all together, let's read a portion of scripture. Well, this is sort of a responsive song, isn't it? Right? The the psalmist is, is singing about his affliction, and then he says, okay, it's not just me, is it? Come on, Israel. Come on community of faith, all together in unison, let's sing about our affliction and how great it is. And then there in verse 3, there's a description of this affliction, and it gets real dark, real fast. It's pretty vivid. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is a, a very specific, graphic imagery as it relates to hardship. It's not really PG. It's not really PG-13, is it? Farmers use plows. I'm told I was a city boy growing up, so I had to do some research here. Okay, farmers use plows, and plows make 
grooves in the earth so that people could plant crops. But look at how the wicked are using plows. They're using them in a very devious manner. Instead of putting gashes in the land, the sort of enemies of God's people are putting gashes in God's people's backs. Back and forth as the grooves go deeper and deeper, longer and longer. Now, this is certainly poetic imagery. It is metaphorical, and yet you you get the point, right? The suffering of God's people is akin to the humiliation and the pain and the brutality of someone trying to break your back. And, And notice that as graphic as this is, a sort of graphic, a description as this section is, the psalmist is singing it. He's singing about his affliction and his suffering. Some of you might know the musician Michael Card. Well, when I was in grad school, I got to um, be a part of uh, one of his lectures. And the lecture series that he gave, the sort of talk he gave, was all about songs of lament. A lament is a, is a suffering song. It's a song of sadness, a, a, a song where you're crying out to the Lord. And I'll never forget, he, he basically said, you know, it's really hard to write songs of lament. And what he didn't mean is that it's hard to compose them or even to write lyrics for laments. That's not what he meant. What, what he meant is that it's really hard to compose and write songs of lament because no one wants to sing them. We want to come to church and we want to sing happy and clappy sorts of praise songs. We want Pollyanna music. It's hard to want to sing a song of lament, especially when things are going well in your life. We all have our preferences. We all have our sort of musical preferences. And don't get me wrong, there definitely is a place for praise music for songs of thanksgiving, for shouts of joy. But equally, is there a place and a need for songs of lament, songs of suffering, songs of sadness? And I think it's sort of tempting for us just to sing songs in which we're comfortable with, songs that we sort of like, our preferences. Or we might just say, well, I'm coming into church and things are going really well, so why would I sing a song of lament or sadness when I'm not feeling very sad? Well, the reason is actually just right there in the text. Because when we come together to sing, just like in the psalm, we're not just singing alone, are we? We're not just singing with our point of reference or with our just story or with our experience at hand. No, we are singing with the church. And when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When one person sings a song of lament, we're all called to sing that same song in unison. When one person sings a song of lament, we put our voices behind that song as if it's our own song. We link arms And we give rise to people's cries, as if there are cries. That's that's what's going on there in verse 1 and 2. 
he is explaining and, and crying out about his own affliction, and then all the church comes together and cries out and describes through song their affliction. So, so when a brother and sister is in pain and suffering, one of the best things you can do with them by way of application is just to sit in their pain with them. A, a bit like Job's friends. When Job went through all of that suffering in the Old Testament, what did his friends do? I mean, they got in trouble when they opened their mouth. But when they sat in their pain and listened and cried out with Job about the suffering he was going through, that's, that's, that's when Job's friends were truly comforting. So whether you have a friend, whether it's you who are going through suffering or hardship or affliction or a friend, sing with them. Sing a song of a man. Maybe not literally, but metaphorically speaking, give rise to their cries as you engage in their suffering with them. And and, and notice there the time frame of this song. I don't know if you notice this. It, It says God's people have suffered afflictions from their youth. Right? The, the illusion there is to, uh, in verse 1 and 2, the, the sort of affliction that comes from their youth, it's certainly a, an allusion to Israel back in Egypt. Right? That is where, in one sense, where God's people were formed from the, the, the suffering and the affliction that was going on when they were living in Egypt. And then God delivered them through mighty acts and they they left. They, they left Egypt. And you might wonder, oh, okay, are they going to leave their suffering behind them in Egypt? No. They were born or sort of conceived in affliction, but then affliction followed them. I mean, every book of the Bible details that sort of affliction. The whole story of God's people from beginning until now is a story of a suffering people, an afflicted people. That's the story. Derek Kidner, in his wonderful and short commentary on the book of Psalms, writes this. Whereas most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved, think about it, if you think of historians, right? Most nations look back at what they have achieved. Israel reflects here on what she has survived. I mean, one of the greatest apologetics, one of the greatest testimonies that God exists is just that God's people still exist and have survived throughout the generations. They sing, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. God's people remain. Do you realize that God's people, God's community, they're, they're, they're they're forged and formed, not in triumph, not, not in initial success, but in affliction. It's always been the case. From Egypt to now, that's the story. I mean, just think through how Christianity spreads throughout the world or has spread throughout the world. Not through triumph, but through suffering. Suffering through triumph. I mean, this past week, I, we had some friends in town who live overseas, and they're moving, Lord willing, to an area that I can't even tell you it's so secret, where no one in their right mind should want to move. 
It is environmentally hostile, and it is physically hostile to the gospel. And they are moving there. They are out of their minds, but they are moving there in all of its hardship and all of its suffering. And they're moving there because they don't have, I suppose, that they're not in their right mind, are they? But they do have the mind of Christ. And they know that the only way that the gospel is going to take root in this particular area of the world is if they make sacrifices, if they suffer. That is how the gospel has always advanced. That is what God's people have always, that's our story. Triumph through suffering. It's a song to be sung. This is why we sing laments, because they remind us of the world we inhabit. It is a world in which, you know, the end is certain, Jesus wins, the church will survive. We even see that here. But it's a lament is just a reminder that we live in a broken world with all of its suffering, and God calls us as the church to cry out to God, to not minimize suffering, not to be trite about suffering, not not to just try to avoid suffering or minimize it, but to sing it. I mean, some of the most persecuted peoples are those that sing most. The church has never existed during peacetime. Now, is that fair? Is that fair that God's people are forged and formed from her youth in suffering? Well, let's keep reading. The first song is the song of the afflicted, but let's look at a second song, the song of those who afflict, the song of the enemies of God. Verse 4, we learn that the Lord is righteous. Now, now that word righteous, it's not as though God is right, And, and it doesn't exactly mean that God is holy, although those two things are true. When you read in your Bible that God is righteous, it's meaning that God has his people's back, that God will fulfill his promises. Whatever God has promised to do, God has bound himself to do. It's as if God is saying, I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to stick with my people through thick and thin. And so because God is righteous, keep reading, he cuts the cords of the wicked. So, so the imagery, right, is, is right there, right? So God's enemies are like plowing a field metaphorically and plowing on the backs of God's people. And all of a sudden, the cords are cut and the plow, the, the plow can't go over the back of God's people anymore. That's the image there. All of a sudden, the plow stops working. Cord has been cut. And so God's enemies, they can't bruise Israel's back any longer. They can't break their back. The cords have been broken. And and what follows, I think, and my guess is, is a little uncomfortable. Makes us a little nervous, especially verses 5 to 8. The idea of this author, this pilgrim, cursing God's enemies. I think sometimes we think of Christians, uh, uh, if I were to use uh, a, a sort of weird analogy of candy, I think sometimes... Christians, or people think of Christians as M&Ms, right? Just kind of sweet. Never get angry, right? Under the sort of furnace of opposition, they, they never 
get furious. I don't think Christians are M&Ms. I think Christians are more like sweet tarts. Sweet, yes. They got a bit of a kick. And here we see it, right? That the pilgrim sings, may all who hate Zion be put to shame. May they be turned back. May they not be able to exist in Zion. May they be put to shame. May they get out of here. Let them be like the grass on a housetop. Which withers before it grows up, right? right? Grass on a, there's no soil, right? So the roots can't go down. And so these enemies are like rootless grass. They're, they're eventually, when the sun goes up, they're just going to be scorched and wither away. Which even a reaper or a binder can't even like, you know, if he takes all the grass that's out there, I mean, he doesn't even have a handful. And then verse 8, may they not be blessed. This language of the pilgrim is one of him shaming God's enemies. It's of cursing God's enemies, of wishing them ill. Sort of makes us uncomfortable. Is it fair? Is it fair that some receive blessing and others receive cursing? Is it fair that some are delivered and rescued? They, they persevere and others are told to turn back, are put to shame. Well, look, look, who, look who are those that are cursed. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion be put to shame. So who are in God's crosshairs? Haters. Those who hate Zion. Now, what is Zion? Well, Zion is a sort of stand in for the city of God. It is where God and God's people meet. It is the mount of God's abode. And so the idea is simply this. Those who hate God are those who are hated by God. Those who refuse to bless God are those who in the end will not be blessed at all. It's sort of a a divine lex talionis, right? The punishment fits the crime. If you don't want to worship God in this life, you won't worship God in the next. If you don't want to follow God in this life, you won't follow God in the next life. If you hate God in this life, you'll continue to hate God in the life to come. That's the divine fairness. God is perfectly fair. Those who hate Zion have no property in Zion. They have no future in Zion. They have no future with God. And like verse 3, the, the judgment described, it's pretty grim, isn't it? In verse 7 and 8, there's, there's a contrast. There's sort of two stories. The first is the sort of futile attempt of, of harvesters harvesting rootless grass. And then the, the second, I actually think, is an, an allusion and connection to the book of Ruth. Uh, you, you might know the book of Ruth, but the, the hero, the sort of redemptive hero in the book of Ruth is Boaz. 
And in chapter 2, Boaz goes out to his field as people are harvesting crops, and he pronounces blessing on them, on the harvesters. He says, blessed are you that there's a harvest for you to harvest. And then they shout in unison, blessed are you, Boaz. And so there's this like blessing exchange going on in Ruth chapter 2. And here you'll notice there's no blessed exchange, is there? That they're not passing by and blessing the Lord. It's like an anti-book of Ruth. So in a sense, you could say, the song of those who afflict or the song of the enemy actually is no song at all. It's just silence. And so what we have in verse 5 and through 8, it really is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of what befalls those who hate Zion, who hate God. It is a divine kind of pullback of the curtain of God's divine fairness. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And so it just sort of behooves me to say that this is the judgment that will come upon those who do not love, who do not bend the knee, who do not follow Jesus Christ. It might not seem fair because our fairness meters are just attuned to to other things. We think, well, I mean, I, I haven't murdered anyone or I haven't done this, so I'm good. But that's not heaven's fairness meter. Heaven's fairness meter is simply this. Do you follow and love God and his people? Have you bent the knee to Jesus Christ? Have you said that you and you alone will I follow? If that's the case, then then the judgment that would befall you in your sin will fall on Jesus Christ and not you. But if not, then judgment will fall on you. It it sort of reminds me of, of, to quote C.S. Lewis again in in his book, The Great Divorce. It's a weird book. It's sort of a trippy book, but it's about a a group of people in hell and they take a spaceship to heaven and they hate it. They hate heaven and they want to go back to hell because in heaven you have to hang out with Jesus and do Jesus stuff. And they would rather have hell doing their own thing than hang out with Jesus and do Jesus stuff with Jesus' people. That's the fairness of heaven. That's the judgment that we see here. And for the Christian, I I just wonder if you notice this. Do you see God and how God aligns with his people? Right? That, 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 That an attack on God's people that we saw in verses 1, 2, and 3, right? That attack on God's people as if is an attack on God himself. Do you remember Paul on the Damascus Road? Paul, who was that great persecutor of the church, right? He, he was there when uh, Stephen was murdered. And he was so sort of evil that he didn't even want to get his hands washed. He's like, I'll just, I'll just stand back, hold the cloaks, and, and watch you guys do it. Because, I mean, I'm not even going to do it with my own hands. And so this Paul, who, who persecuted the church, he's walking on the Damascus Road. And all of a sudden, you know, he hears the, the roaring and lights. And a voice calls out and says, why do you persecute the church? No, that's not what it says, does it? 
But the voice says, why do you persecute me? And then Paul says, I mean, who are you? Right? Identify yourself. And the voice identifies itself and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Isn't that interesting? What this all means in in the Damascus Road with Paul and here in Psalm 129 is that an attack on the church is de facto an attack on God himself. It means that as people attack the backs of God's people figuratively, sometimes literally, it means in the end God's got your back. God's in your corner. God will fight for you. As the church suffers, so God will defend her. And and we get this, right? I think mothers get this more than anyone, right? If someone attacks your child, mama bear comes out. Well, the same is true with God. An attack on the church is an attack on God himself. He so aligns with his people and his people are so aligned with him that to attack them is to attack himself. Right? It, it reminds me of the Abrahamic, uh, back in uh, the Abrahamic promise, right? God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Now, this, this looks different. Sometimes it doesn't look like the church is winning. Or sometimes it doesn't look like God is standing in the gap or God is protecting the church or God is defending the church. We live in sort of the overlap of the ages between Christ's resurrection and ascension and his return. And so sometimes it doesn't look like we're winning. And to that extent, I think we need patience. God is enacting his divine fairness, but it takes time. One poet once said, as many of you know it, that the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Now, what does that mean? It means justice, fairness. it's, It's slow, but it will come eventually. And we've got to be patient. Sometimes we get a a glimpse of God cutting the cords of the wicked. But more often than we would want, we don't see that, do we? And so we need patience. And we need to trust God that God is doing in his own time, in his perfect, sovereign, providential timing, he is enacting his fairness perfectly at the perfect time. And all of us, should have a bit of humility. I mean, if God enacted justice on me before I was a Christian, I mean, literally, thank God that that didn't happen. We need patience. Now, there's one more song. It's sort of the third part harmonic song that kind of ties this song of lament and this song of judgment together. It is the sweetest song. It is the song of the deliverer. Go back to verse 4. Verse 4, we read that the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Then if you go back to verse 3, it says that though God's people are afflicted, they are not destroyed. But how are God's people delivered? 
How are some delivered? And how are some not delivered? Well, it's through one more song. Now, God's people, like I said earlier, they're meant to sing this song. But only Jesus perfectly can sing this song. Israel, from her youth, was afflicted. So was Jesus. Ever thought about this? You ever gone to the narrative birth in Matthew? Thought, okay, here you have Jesus born in affliction, and a king is seeking to murder every firstborn male. Sounds eerily similar to Pharaoh, doesn't it? And so where does this Messiah have to go? An angel says, you need to go to Egypt. And then it says, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Jesus is the true fulfillment of Israel, born in iniquity, born in suffering, born in affliction, born literally out of Egypt. But you see, how is it that this Messiah would cut the cords of the wicked ultimately? It's not just that he was born in suffering. He had to suffer motorcycles. He had to suffer as well, right? Remember back in verse 3? Israel as a scourged man with the, the sort of wheels of the plow cutting deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, that imagery isn't just applied to Israel, is it? I mean, you go to Isaiah, the prophetic literature of Isaiah, and you go to the servant songs, and it's applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus would offer his back to those who beat him. That's how God would ultimately cut the cords of the wickedness of sin, by a willing sacrifice of his own son. And then having accomplished that, Jesus rises from the grave, conquering death. He ascends to the right hand of God. He is then interceding on our behalf right now in our suffering in our affliction, sustaining us, and he will one day return. And on the day of his return, he will forever cut the cords of wickedness. He will forever cut the cords of those who attack the church. He will forever cut the cords of those who hate Zion. The enemies of God will turn back at Christ's return. And at that moment, there will be no song. There will be only silence. God came first to deliver and second to judge. Do you, do you notice this song? It's, it's almost divided in, in regards to that. Deliverance of God's people who are afflicted and judgment on God's enemies. That's the the fairness of heaven. The deliverance comes only through God's Son. And those who reject that provision, in the end, God rejects too. It's a hard song. I think in some ways it's one of the hardest songs to sing. But it is a Christian song. It is in the Christian scriptures. And I do think it, by way of application, creates a posture within us all. That that as we face opposition, 
as we face unfairness, levels of injustice, cruelty, rejection. I don't think the posture should be vengeance or bitterness or I want to get even. I think in some ways we should, our hearts should be broken because we know the lot of the wicked. And not only that, but we know we too were once wicked. We too once hated Zion. We too once hated God. But only through the gospel did he make us a friend. The Lord is righteous. He's got our back. But we also know that the mill of God, they grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Deliverance comes to some. It doesn't come to all. It doesn't come to those who hate God. The mill of God grinds slowly, but it grinds exceedingly fine. Let's, let's pray to that end. God, we, we are so grateful and sobered in the reality that through your son Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Lord, we pray that you would give us patience as we, as we think through fairness in this world. We pray, Lord, that you would help tune our own fairness meters in light of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us humility, compassion, and patience. Lord, we, we are grateful for your son and how he sings this song on our behalf. Let us in, in follow in his footsteps, taking up our own cross and following him. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.